We are continuing our march through Matthew's gospel in this sermon series that's gone on for over a year now called uh, All Hail the King. And so we find ourselves now in another of Jesus' parables here in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And the sermon text can be found on page 8 of your worship folder if you wish to follow along. These are the words of Christ to us. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call all who were invited to the wedding feast, that they sh- would, but they would not come. And he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look to the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, We do thank you for your word. We're thankful for the truth that you reveal to us. We pray now as we consider uh, these hard words through this parable of Christ that our hearts would be open to see once again the face of Jesus Christ, our Savior, ministering to us his mercy and grace. We ask this in your name. Amen. People, most people at least, uh, enjoy a good wedding story. Do they not? I mean, after all, they're, they're happy, uh, joy-filled times of, of celebration. We, we, we delight in the grandeur of the decorations and, and the beauty that is there, that the shared love between the man and woman, and, and as they pledge to serve and enjoy one another for life. I mean, even Hallmark knows this, right? They gave us a whole channel that is filled with sappy romance films, often centered around Christmas. There's a certain almost magic to weddings. They, they give us a sense of hope, a sense that there are still good things in this bad world that has been stained by the ugliness of sin. Now, after hearing a wedding story, it's then that we often have our hearts warmed happy. But this wedding story in our text today isn't like other wedding stories. In fact, it leaves us feeling a bit uncomfortable. It may may even make you feel upset or angry. Only Jesus could tell the story of a wedding and make us squirm. 
This parable that Jesus tells doesn't give us those warm fuzzies. Instead, it's a bit fearful, a bit shocking. Its, it's tone is rather harsh. It, it has violence and murder and warfare. And the concluding point that Jesus gives to sum it all up, well, it kind of rubs against our notions of His mercy and grace in the wrong way. And He says that many are called to this wedding, but, but few are chosen. And yet, it is within those very words that may seem hard to hear on the surface that there is an element of abundant hope and mercy in which we as believing Christians can rejoice. The first thing we see is that God's kingdom is indeed like a grand wedding celebration. This isn't the first instance where we've seen Jesus speak of his kingdom as it is like a wedding. Uh, in Matthew 9.15, Jesus asked the Pharisees, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Of course, speaking of his coming crucifixion. Um, Later in Matthew 25, Jesus will give us another parable of ten virgins who are to attend a wedding ceremony. And so we get this picture of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, being like a wedding. And parables like our text are designed to show us how God rules over his kingdom. And here in this story, the wedding is of royal uh, Nature. It is a royal wedding. It is the wedding for the king's son. We would expect it to be one of great grandeur and opulence. Now, weddings in the time of Jesus, earthly ministry, they were different than weddings today. And the most notable difference is that they were multi-day affairs. And for those of you that have weddings coming up this summer, I'm sure you're happy you don't have to prepare a multi-day event. One is hard enough. (laughs) But they were multi-day affairs. No expense was spared in these festivals. Being invited to a wedding then was no small honor. And this is demonstrated by the fact that wedding invitations at this time in this part of the world were double invitations. We even see that in the text. Uh, We know in verse 3 that the king sends out his servants to summon those who were invited to the wedding feast. They had already received the first invitation saying, there is going to be a wedding of my son and I want you to be there. Your presence is desired. The time of the wedding had now arrived. And so he sends out his servants for this second invitation. It's time to go. It's time to feast. Time to celebrate. Time to enjoy the benefit of the king as he celebrates the marriage of his son. And to show honor towards him simply by being in his presence. Now in the Bible, even going back to the Old Testament, we find that marriage and weddings are used by God as a picture or metaphor to describe his relationship with his people. In the prophets especially, we see this metaphor by being used by God as, as uh, he seeks to woo back his unfaithful bride, Israel, from their sinful idolatry, which is likened to adultery. 
And this theme of weddings and marriage is is picked up as a metaphor of God's kingdom in the New Testament as well, most notably in Ephesians 5, where Paul speaks of Christ being the bridegroom and his bride being the church whom he has purified through his great love for the bride. He has given himself as a sacrifice for her so that she may, may be holy without blemish presented to him. And that cleansing work means that she can enjoy the presence of God for all eternity. And then we come to the end of the Bible, the end of God's revealed written word to us, where we read of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Christ's people in joyous celebration meet with Him in a great feast and enjoy all the blessings of the gospel forever. That wedding is very much in view behind Jesus' story here. This isn't just any wedding feast. This is the king's wedding feast. And who wouldn't want to attend that? But shockingly, shockingly, we find the invitation is refused. In verse 3, we, we see this outright refusal to the second invitation. They, it, Jesus says, they, the invitees, they would not come. Now, they've already accepted the first invitation. Remember, it's a double invitation. But they're refusing the summoning. And culturally, what they're doing is they are going back on their word. They had promised to be there when they received the first invitation, but now they're saying, nope, I'm not going to go. It's no different than uh, what we saw in the prior parable last week with the second son. Remember, the father goes to his two sons. He asks them to go work in the vineyard. And uh, the first says, no, I won't do it. But then he repents and he goes and works in the father's vineyard. But the second son, what does he do? He says, sure, dad, I'll go work in the vineyard. And then he refuses. He does not go. That's exactly what is happening here. They said, yeah, we'll come to the wedding. But then when the time of the wedding came, they say, no, we refuse to go. And to refuse the king's summoning by way of his second invitation was a great dishonor to the king himself. It was an insult, for they were rejecting the graciousness of his offer to enjoy his blessings from his own hand in his presence. But the king is a very patient one. And so he sends a second group of servants to convince them to come to his wedding feast. And this time they rehearse all the benefits, all the the good things that the king would give in this celebration from which they could partake and enjoy freely. Uh, Verse 4, tell those who are invited, see I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Come to the wedding feast. Oxen and fattened calves, those were considered at this time the best food that that one could offer. It was like serving the best prime rib or, or lobster. No expense is spared. He's giving the greatest of what he has to those who would come. 
He won't withhold his richest foods or his finest wines. It was to be a lavish feast of treasured blessings poured out in abundance. There would be more than you could eat and enjoy. And of course, all those details are are meant to entice, to convince, to show them the great blessing that they would miss out on if they refused to come. And surely they will acquiesce this time. Surely they will hear the king's summons and heed them and, and come with haste to the feast. But they do not. And Jesus explains to us in verse 5 that this time they paid no attention. And I love the way the old King James Version translates that. It says, they made light of it. Literally, they did not care. It meant nothing to them. And so we must ask the question then, why, why would anyone refuse to go and eat in celebration with the king when so much is offered to them. I mean, it's one thing to pass up on a free meal, but not the meal of a king. It seems almost absurd. And that's because it is. But here's the thing. Absurdity is often reality. And so the people refuse, and Jesus gives us a couple reasons why they refuse the king's offer. And it is within those reasons that he gives in this parable, in this story, that we find the sad excuses of why so many people reject the true invitation of the gospel yet to this day. You see, while the invitees in this story are the people of Israel in general and the chief priests and elders of the people in particular. The point behind Jesus' comparison is meant to go beyond Israel's rejection of him as their Messiah and king. The reasons for refusing the king's story is a a story of the people today who still give these same reasons for refusing the invitation of the gospel of grace. I mean, there is not one person in this assembly this morning who has not heard of Christ and the salvation that he offers freely through his gospel. There's not one of us who has not heard that free offer of the gospel announced to us. The gospel is so accessible today, and yet it continues to be rejected by so many people in this world. God the King invites all to come to the wedding of His Son where they might sit and dine on the riches of His blessings of forgiveness and grace for all eternity. There is an overwhelming abundance of His mercy that is held out and peace and hope and real happiness and joy and holiness in Christ. But so many... Look at those blessings. They hear that offer and it means nothing to them. They make light of it. And the world marches on paying no attention. And so here are those two reasons why people do this absurd thing and refuse God's blessing in the gospel. First, they're more occupied with their earthly concerns than the company of the king of heaven. We read in verse 5, 
that these people, they paid no attention and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business. And, and notice the emphasis there. One went off to his farm and another to his business. And the language is meant to, to highlight this selfishness inherent in their hearts. There's nothing inherently sinful or evil with farming and, and, and business, commerce. That is a good thing. Owning and operating a business is, and, and farming, both of those are noble and good pursuits into which people can engage. Work is a gift of God given to us and of His common grace to all humanity so that we might enjoy life in His creation for His glory. But the issue here is the one of selfishness. My profits is more important than the king's invitation. My success requires my attention more than the word of the king. I mean, Jesus has warned us before, even in Matthew's gospel, of the danger of making worldly cares and concerns more important than his kingdom. Matthew six nineteen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In Matthew 6.25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In Matthew 6.33, Seek Ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And yet despite these words and these warnings, so many do not listen. Like the invitees of Jesus' parable, they have other things to do. They cannot be bothered with the king's business, even though the blessing of that business far exceeds anything that their hands can do. C.S. Lewis says it so well in his sermon entitled The Weight of Glory, where he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex, with ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I mean... Even us who are professing Christians, and your pastor included, find it easy to disregard the blessings of the gospel. I mean, let me give you an example of how we do this, myself included. When it comes to the idea of a Sabbath, a one in seven day, a Lord's day to worship Him, we do it, but it's kind of half-hearted. We view it as a duty, not as a delight. We'd rather fill our days looking for our own comfort, our own rest, rather than finding the true rest that comes through worshiping and enjoying our King. So many people disregard the kingdom of Christ and sadly 
For many, that disregard leads to disdain, which is precisely the second reason Jesus gives for not going to the wedding feast when they've been invited. You see, some of the invitees disdained the king. They hated the king, and they show that by killing his messengers. In verse 6, we read of how they, they seize the king's servants and the ideas of a violent seizure. They treat them shamefully. They abuse them. They torture them. And then they murder them. They kill them. Again, this isn't your typical hallmark wedding story. They killed the king's servants because they hated the king. They did not want to hear the invitation They didn't want to hear the patient please, the long-suffering calling to come. Come, come, leave behind the lesser things and come to the greater. Come and enjoy the king's blessing. And so they kill the messengers in order to not hear the message. And the danger of making light of the gospel is that eventually... Disregard will transform to disdain and you will begin to hate it. The sweetness of grace becomes bitter. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he said, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. People will not accept the king's message because they're too busy with their own concerns to be concerned with the gospel and their lives. Or they will not accept the message because they literally despise the message itself. There is a disdain for the gospel. But God will not be thwarted by disregard and disdain of those whom he calls. He will fill up his banquet hall. He will pour out his blessings of grace and mercy on those that he will bring in to the wedding of the Son. God will fill up the wedding banquet hall. And there are two ways that he does that that are highlighted in Jesus' story. The first is actually the hard one. It is the judgment of the king. In response to those who murdered his messengers. The king, in Jesus' parable, he launches a military campaign against them. And so we read in verse 7, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. I mean, if the invitees murdering the king's servants didn't seem out of place in a wedding story, this military campaign certainly does. We're being transported from the sweet aromas and the jubilant laughter of a wedding feast to the acrid smell and cries of agony on a battlefield. This is dark. This is anything but happy. This is judgment. The king cannot let the murder of his servants go unpunished. He cannot allow his grace to be so easily and violently spurned. He will not suffer the dishonor of his name, even though he is patient and long-suffering. The time has come to reckon with those who have destroyed his servants. 
And so he turns his armies loose against them to destroy those who have opposed him, and he burns their city with ash. Now, this word that Jesus speaks here through parable, it is a prophetic word. He is speaking of a future that was near to both him and his disciples and those who were listening, particularly the people of Israel who would reject him and soon crucify him. This little scene is a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the hand of the Roman legions under the command of Titus. And Jesus will speak to this more coming up in Matthew's gospel. We will learn how Jerusalem is devastated and the temple destroyed. The pride of the people would be laid waste as the city burns for their rebellion against Christ and rejecting him as their king. But that judgment has a far fulfillment as well. You see, all judgment in the Bible points us to a final judgment. It's meant to be a warning, a reminder that God is holy. He is merciful, but he is also holy. And unless we repent and turn from our sinful rebellion, we too will experience his holy hand of justice. And it seems so unpleasant. Well, that's because it is. Sin is not a pleasant thing. You see, the reason that God's holy judgment often does not make sense to us or makes us feel uncomfortable when we read it in the scriptures is because we don't understand our sin correctly. You have to have a right view of your sin and how heinous and how horrible it is before God. For we are the ones who are willing to kill his servants to turn off his message. God cannot overlook that easily. And so if we refuse his mercy in Christ and the forgiveness that is ours, he must deal with that sin through his holy justice, his judgment. He must deal with it. And of course, that leaves us with a big problem. Because after all, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We all at some time or another have made light of his gospel. We have spurned the invitation of the king. We treat worship of him, of enjoying his presence as if it is simply a light thing, something that is uh, tacked on to our day. And so we ask the question then, if when the king's army comes, who will be spared? Because we are all guilty. The blood of our sin is upon our hands. How can we stand before a holy and just God? We can because he is also a gracious and merciful God. You see, we, in this story, not only do we see the judgment of the king, but we see the grace of the king. The king in Jesus' stories tells his servants in verse 8, he says to them, the wedding feast is ready. I've made everything ready. Those that were invited were not worthy. There's still blessings to share, still a feast that has been prepared, and the king wants guests to be there, to, to share his bounty with. And what does he do then? He sends his servants out once again. He sends them out 
this time to complete strangers, to go into the main roads, the highways, and say, hey, the king has prepared a wedding. Why don't you come? Come to his wedding. And in verse 10, we read, those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests, both those who were Morally good as, as well as those who were bad. The unsavory characters, they all were invited and they all were brought to this wedding. And eventually the great banquet hall is full of guests of all kinds. And this is the gospel of God's abundant and unchanging grace. And consider again the, the patient pursuit of the guests on the part of the king. He, he first invites and summons those who, uh, who he had first called, and they reject his call. So he tries again, uh, rehearsing the beauty of the wedding and the abundance of his provision. Again, that's rejected. And so this time he says, I'm still going to share my grace with somebody. And so he calls out this time to all who will hear in the street, come to my feast. God will pursue the worst of sinners with his kind and merciful pleas until they finally bend to his sovereign pleasure in faith and repentance so that they might know the joy of his presence forever. You see, Jesus will receive the reward of his sufferings, a people called by his name, forgiven of every sin, and made right with God forever, so that they might enjoy him in worship forever. The king will fill up his banquet hall, because the king is sovereign over all. He will use his sovereign judgment but also his sovereign mercy to guarantee that his promises are fulfilled. And here is why that is such a hopeful thing. Because it means that when we, you and I, come, if we will listen to the invitation, we can be assured that there is a place at the table of the king for us. You see, God's sovereignty guarantees the wedding of the Son will be filled up. But the fact that God is sovereign, that He will ensure that it is full, does not neglect the responsibility of faith and repentance as well. And and Jesus brings those two elements of, of God's sovereignty in our salvation and our responsibility of responding in faith together through this shocking conclusion of his story. We read in verse 11, when the king came to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to them, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And so much for a happy wedding. If we were to end the story, I know I'd probably end it with bringing in the guests and filling up the wedding hall. The end. We get to enjoy the feast forever. But Jesus says, oh, wait a minute here. Here's this little coda that I want you to understand. You see, what he wants us to understand is a sovereign king 
gets to decide what is appropriate to enjoy his feast. Again, a sovereign king decides what is appropriate if we are to enjoy his feast. We must realize that it is the king's feast. It is not ours. Because of it, it is the king's feast. He gets to determine what the dress code is. We can't just show up simply because we were invited. In fact, we understand this concept. We practice it ourselves with our own weddings and special events. If something, if an event, a celebration is a formal affair, you can't show up in your painting clothes and a t-shirt. Well, you can, but it certainly is disrespectful to the events. You wear the appropriate attire. And at the time that Jesus told this story, wedding attire was simply clean attire. It wasn't the, the garments you wore in the vineyard or the, or the field or when you were building your house. It was something that was clean, something that had been washed, something that was fresh. But this man that Jesus talks about in his story, he didn't come with that kind of attire. He came with his plain, ordinary attire. He came in his street clothes. They were dirty. They were stained. They were dusty. He needed fresh and clean garments. And so he is cast out of the wedding hall into the outer darkness. Again, this is a picture of God's holy justice and judgment. And it happens to him because he didn't follow the instructions on the invitation. He tried to come in through the back door, coming in another way. And so we have to ask the question then, what are those garments that are required when we've received the call to come to the king's wedding? They're simply this. They are our faith in Christ, demonstrated by our faithfulness to Christ. That's the garment that assures you that you are not only called, hearing that invitation, but you are chosen by God's grace. It is faith demonstrated by your faithfulness to Christ. You see, it's one thing to just hear the invitation and accept it and and put it on a pile of, of other information And think, well, hey, I'll just go when it's time. But it is another thing to take that invitation and to cherish it and to prepare yourself and to to believe that the king is actually calling me. How can I not go? And then in faith, putting on what you have in faith and coming to him. Now, for some, that garment might be pretty regal. That faith might be great might be pretty opulent, but for others, it might not seem much, but it's clean. It's simple faith in Christ alone. We accept the invitation on the terms that the king has determined, not our own. And that is a good thing, because it guarantees that your faith in Jesus will be rewarded with the grace that is promised to you. It's what assures you that you are both called and chosen by God. You see, faith isn't just a one-time thing. We don't just say some prayer, asking Jesus into our heart, and then kind of go our own way. 
thinking that we are guaranteed the blessings of the king's table because we said some magic words. That's not how faith works. Faith is ongoing and and continuing to come to Christ. That is why we have a Sabbath, a Lord's Day, where we gathered, where God communicates the grace of the gospel through his word and through sacraments. And our hearts are refreshed once again as we feast on his gracious blessing. Faith is ongoing and demonstrated through our faithfulness. Our faithfulness in worship, our faithfulness in our lives as as we seek to love God and our neighbors. Our faithfulness through repentance when we, we do fail to keep the king's commands. Because our faithfulness is never perfect. It isn't. We still have that stain of sin. Even the cleanest wedding garments, they're a bit dingy and dull when compared to the glory of the king. And yet they're good enough. He receives that simple faith. You may be here this morning and you are struggling with your faith. You say, you know, I I just don't feel it. I believe, but there's so much unbelief and doubt. It's, it's hard to believe. I know the stain of sin. I, I failed the king this week in so many ways. But if you come again in simple faith and repentance, you can be assured that the door is open to you. That is God's saving grace. That it was what it means to be called and chosen by him. And so by putting on the garment of faithful faith by the grace of God alone means that there's a seat at the table with your name on it. There's a little reservation card that says, welcome, have a seat, and enjoy my meal. You see, to be invited to the wedding That would be simply amazing in itself, wouldn't it? To get that invitation and, hey, the king is calling me. But in Christ, united to him in faith, you are not only called, you have been chosen to be there by his grace. And so, let us, as we read in Revelation 19, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we, your people, are so thankful that you call us to your side and that your powerful and sovereign mercy overcomes all of, all of our objections so that we can Do nothing but say, yes, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And coming, we know the blessing of being yours. Thank you for the seat at the table that you have opened for us through Christ our Lord. And may we all be encouraged to continue in our faith, faithful to the end, till we see our bridegroom coming in glory and He takes us to his side where we might rejoice with him forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.